0: This is Archive Atlanta, episode 40, Castleberry Hill. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday, and happy belated 4th of July. I hope everyone enjoyed their day off, if you had one, and even the luckier ones that have off today which I am one this year, so a toast to us. I ran the Petrie Road Race again this year. I think it might have been my fourth or fifth time. The humidity was out of control. Not that any of us were shocked because it's Atlanta, um, but it was a struggle. So if you ran it too, kudos to you because I couldn't really do anything for the rest of the day after I was finished. This week, we're talking about Castleberry Hill. For many people, this area has only recently hit their radar with the construction of the new stadium, and even more so with the redevelopment of the old Norfolk Southern headquarters. What's ironic, though, is that this part of Atlanta is one of the oldest and earliest settlements, and its history is so unique and interesting. The story begins, as always, with the Native American trails that traverse the land— You've heard me mention the Sandtown Trail more so in the East Atlanta episode, but it was a native trail route um, that stretches east to west across the state of Georgia. Once the trail passed what is now Five Points in downtown Atlanta, it would head to a creek village at Utoy Creek. As white settlers continued to populate the area, the Sandtown Trail would become a stagecoach route and it would be renamed the Sandtown Road. Now, in connection with this Sandtown Road, um, we have a neighborhood called the West End. The West End is certainly getting its own episode, so I don't want to get into too much detail. But there was a tavern, slash post office, slash store in that area called Whitehall Tavern, and the road to get from what was then Atlanta to Whitehall was what we currently call Peter Street in Castleberry Hill. Now, the road was originally called Whitehall because logic, you know, it took you to Whitehall Tavern. Sometime, though, around 1853, it was named to honor Richard Peters. Peters being an early Atlanta developer of streetcars and land. And fun fact, it was actually Richard Peters that designed the plans for the first suburb of Atlanta, but it just never got built. So instead, Joel Hurt and Inman Park hold that title. Before getting into the history of Castleberry Hill, let's orient ourselves and explain the boundaries of the neighborhood The northern edge runs pretty much into the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, the western edge runs along Northside Drive, and the bottom of the neighborhood is officially delineated by the McDaniel Street. The eastern edge runs along the railroad tracks, and these tracks may seem unexciting to most, but they date back to 1846, which is when Atlanta was born. This line was one of the three main rail lines that brought the city into being. So today, they're building hundreds of new apartments right along these tracks, and I kind of, when I see them, I hope that the future residents appreciate this connection to the city, and at least maybe that fact will make that train noise a little better. What many people, myself included, forget about early Atlanta is that it was a frontier town. We all have generalities and stereotypes that we associate with the South, but before Atlanta was named Atlanta, this was almost straight out of a Western The earliest European settlers were usually men, and they were living a pioneer life. And I talked about this in the Vinings episode, but this means you build your own log cabin, you sustain your own food, there's really not many places to buy goods, and, you know, a very much frontier living. Before Atlanta existed, Decatur and Marietta were well-established cities. And as word of a railroad came to this spot in the middle, more and more white settlers began to move in and set up businesses. Jonathan Norcross was from New England, and operated the city's first manufacturing operation here in Atlanta. It was a sawmill, opened about 1844, and his biggest customer was, of course, the Georgia Railroad. So the mill would churn out cross ties to lay the track, and then any kind of scraps would be given away to poor mill workers who would then use those to build small cabins and shanties. So this is where, if you've ever read Atlanta history and heard the name Slabtown, this is that shantytown name and where it came from. By 1850, the city is home to about 2,500 people, and there is 40 saloons for their drinking pleasure. The treasured pastimes of this era were cockfighting and gambling. But I don't want people to think that this was a dangerous place. The murder rate in early Atlanta was actually really, really low. In the years from 1851 to 1856, there was only one murder per year. And at that point, the population had grown to almost 8,000. So that's a you know pretty low statistic. When people talk about the lawlessness and the Wild West attitude of this early settlement that we now call Atlanta, think less along the lines of violent crime and more like vice, prostitution, heavy drinking, things like that. In the 1840s and 50s, along old Whitehall Street, there existed an enclave of log cabins and wood huts, and it was home to what were called snake oil peddlers. Snake oil at that time is a euphemism for deception, and it's based on an oil that used to be sold um, in basically like cure-all elixirs <laughs> during the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, people would sell something and be like, oh, this is going to cure all your ails." So a snake oil salesman is a catch-all phrase for kind of a con man. Put all of this together, and this area of our city was called Snake Nation by the early press. Now, Jonathan Norcross, who I mentioned earlier, was very much invested in the growth of this new settlement, and his mill helped to literally build it. He also opened a store, and he joined the movement to change the city's name to Martha'sville, after the governor's daughter. He established the city's first daily newspaper, called the Daily Intelligencer, and he ran as the first mayoral candidate in 1848. There were only two hundred and fifteen eligible voters, but he ended up losing to the opponent, Moses Formwalt, who represented the Free and Rowdy Party. Three years later, Norcross ran again as a representative from the Moral Party, and this time it was against Leonard Simpson, who was a rowdy. So here's a great time to explain these two parties. The Free and Rowdies were led by men that owned distilleries, bars, brothels, and they felt that they represented the true character of the city. Early spirit of railroad outpost, right? Kind of this not a real city, not a real town. It was just an outpost out in the middle of nowhere. When they campaigned for votes, they often did so inside saloons, and they did it by picking up your bar tab. As you can imagine, Snake Nation was loyal to the Free and Rowdy Party, and the Moral Party was, well also pretty self-explanatory. They believed in law and order, temperance, chastity, and they campaigned by handing out more wholesome uh, snacks like apples and candies to the city's residents. In this 1851 election, Norcross ended up winning. He was intent on cleaning up the city and restoring that, quote, law and order that they talked about to the area. So his first day in office. He holds police court and that processes any kind of arrests um, and criminal charges. Long story short, a rowdy is brought in. He's been fined for street fighting. Uh, and Mayor Norcross, I, I mean, I think kind of says he's guilty or whatever the, the verbiage is. But this guy refuses to go down without a fight. He pulls out a knife on the mayor. Norcross grabs a chair in retaliation. And there's just a little bit of drama in this courtroom. The following evening, the Rowdies bring an 1812 war cannon over from Decatur. They stuff it with sand and gravel, and they shoot it right at Norcross's general store. Imagine what happens. Uh, Pretty much ensue the crackdown. Over the next few weeks, residents of Snake Nation... And the free and rowdy party leaders are jailed or put under house arrest. And the legend is that late one night, the moral party enters Snake Nation under the cover of darkness and chases all the men out to the edges of town. They put all the women on carriages, send them to Decatur, and the wooden shanties of Slabtown and Snake Nation are then burned to the ground. The former Snake Nation remained kind of a cleared area for many years, but Atlanta was quickly growing and the area was quickly changing, which is a lot like what we're seeing now. The Castleberry family is associated with the area from like 1859 through right after the Civil War. Merrill Thomas Castleberry was born in 1830 in Georgia. He served in the Confederate Army. and He was actually shot in the face in battle, but he survived. He would come to Atlanta own a few successful businesses and people have written about Castleberry and they say that he was very much committed to the new south the ideals the passion to rebuild Atlanta so he wasn't stuck in the past which was rare considering that he fought in the civil war he served as city council member from 1870 to 1872 and he had three daughters with his wife Martha it's certainly not there anymore, but the Castleberry Home, one stood right along, I think it's 164 Peter Street, and then they had a grocery store, which was just a few doors down. By 1868, he owns many, many plots of land in the area, and so that's how we get the area named after him. Now, if you're wondering where we get the hill part from, uh, the highest spot in the neighborhood is at Walker Street between Stonewall and Fair, if you walk around this neighborhood, this will come as no surprise. Um, it's not, you know, not a huge hill, but it's definitely there. Now, if you didn't notice, next time you're walking that way, take a look. Post-Civil War Atlanta is a place of change. By 1878, we had recovered from the 1873 recession, and the city has become more legitimate. We get public schools, public transit, and public services. And at this point, about 80% of Castleberry Hill is residential, This is really hard to imagine, and I know a lot of people assume that this has been a warehouse, factory, industrial area from the beginning, but that's not really accurate. The people that were living in this neighborhood, they were working class, and then what they called managerial class. African Americans are beginning to move into the northern and western parts of the neighborhood um, in the 1870s. There were businesses, but they were scattered um, and not the way we see it today. There was even some plots that were used as farmland. The two main buildings in Castlebury Hill at this time were a school and a fire station. The Walker School, which um, stood where now is 165 Walker Street. And I think that stood up until the 80s when it caught fire, but anyway. Um, and then the fire station, which was originally at Bradbury and Fair Street. Another difficult thing to imagine is that the entire area of Castleberry Hill was separated from the downtown center of Atlanta by elevation and railroad tracks. So the only way out of the neighborhood, if you want to say it that way, was the Nelson Street Bridge. This is the closed, rough-looking bridge that connects the old Norfolk Southern Building, which I'll talk about soon, I promise, um, and the area that's near the fire station and the barbecue restaurant. Historical records give us a really good idea that this bridge over the viaduct was the first bridge in Atlanta. Nelson Street was an extension of Nelson's Ferry Road. I talked about river crossing ferries in the Vinings episode, um, but basically a guy named Nelson um, had a river crossing all the way down to the Chattahoochee, so this road stretched all the way there. The bridge was originally wooden, but it was replaced by the one you see today in the early 1900s. Now, it's been closed to traffic for a while now, and I think if I get the story right, um, however many years ago, there was a bridge that collapsed in the Midwest, and so they tested bridges across the country, and they had this rating system. So this bridge ends up scoring a 31 out of 100. It was promptly closed to any vehicle traffic. For a while, you were still able to walk on it, but it has been completely shut down for a few years now. The bridge goes into or through a large building, which we call the Norfolk Southern Building. If you live down here or have been in the area lately, you know that the building is currently under a huge renovation and will be opening as apartments. The lowest floors of the building were built in 1912, and then it expanded to eight stories in 1928. And these buildings housed logistics, distribution, storage, and employees for Norfolk Southern until 2004. I'm pretty sure it's been vacant since then. It's finally getting some love. The bridge, however, is lacking in the love department, as it has been, at least last time I checked, partially demolished. And speaking of demolishing, as you stand on or near the Nelson Street Bridge, you can look over and imagine the grand terminal station that once stood right where the Russell B. Federal Building is. Right where the Richard B. Russell Federal Building is. Built in 1905, and I talk about this more in the Downtown Hotels episode, but it was the newest and most glorious passenger depot at the turn of the century. They nicknamed it the Gateway to the South. And as the automobile grew in popularity, the station would fall into decline and disrepair and gets demolished in 1971. Now, a very small piece of the station did linger, um, and that was the switching station. So it would be down along the railroad tracks, and this was just torn down within the last year or two, and I think it was in connection with this renovation. Castleberry Hill is comprised of two main streets. One I talked about earlier, Peter's, and the other one is Walker. Early settlers petitioned to the city council for a street that would connect the Nelson Bridge with Peter's Street, and the council delivered. They named it for Samuel Walker, who was a very early white settler of Atlanta, whose land and home is what is now Piedmont Park. There are many unique buildings along Peters and Walker, so I'm going to take you on a very miniature virtual walking tour and mention a handful of my favorite buildings. But as always, I implore you to take a walk and see for yourself. It has been years since I've taken the Castleberry Hill walking tour, but they do offer it every year for Phoenix Flies, so keep an eye out for that next year if you'd like to do this. As you walk down Peter's, away from the city center, you'll see the Lee Riders Jeans Store um, to your right, and it's very unique. It has interesting kind of glass windows, but this was built in 1925, owned by three generations, and then it was converted to a private home in the late 80s. Further up on your left, there is the Swift Meatpacking Building. This is a 1927 building, and now it's also lofts. I think some people might be weirded out by living in an old meatpacking facility, but that is not me, so if anybody wants to give me a loft, I'll take it. <laughs> Castlebury Hill is also home to the Atlanta City Baptist Rescue Mission, which um, has a very unique building. I love it because the front of it says, Jesus saves, and that reminds me of my favorite Big Bethel. The building was originally constructed in the 1920s um, and it served as a lumber company office. So as you get to the spot where Walker and Peters converge, you'll make a very sharp, very sharp right turn. And the Walker Street stables are on your left. And I think that this is the classic Castlebury Hill photo opportunity um, because it looks exactly probably as it did in 1919. It looks like it's horse stables now, but it has been a residence for the last several decades. Now, this is where you start to climb the hill in Castleberry Hill, um, but midway up, there is the Ty Stokes Cap and Gown Building, and that was a choir robe factory um, built in 1915. And now, just past this at 217 Walker Street is the last remaining house in the district. Now commercial, but it gives you a really small glimpse into imagining this area as more residential. And here's where I strongly suggest that you make the next right at Haynes Street, and you make a quick left, and you'll walk in between what feels like an alleyway. So you'll be in between the buildings, it's not paved, it's kind of dirt and gravel. This is the rail line spur. So think of it this way, the main railroad tracks would bring in the standard looking train with all the cars connected. um, And then those cars would be separated and then brought down the spur directly to the back door of each warehouse or factory. So the first thing I want you to do is look down because at a lot of points under the dirt and the sand, you can see the actual rail poking through. But then I want you to look up, because at the top of each building, there's a section that rises up past the roof into a square, and the shaft of each freight elevator would stencil the company's name. As the materials travel down the spur, the conductor or whoever's driving it would look up and be able to know where each stop was. For me, this is one of the most magical spots in the city because it connects the past with the present and then it remains almost as it looked a century ago and it's all the things I love together. At this point in our walk, you are back near the Nelson Street Bridge. Um, Just down the block, there's two places that I've mentioned in previous episodes. One is in talking about Prohibition. I talked about the Elliott Street Pub. That building was originally built in 1899 um, as a blacksmith shop and a carriage house. But in 1916, it was raided by the feds, who found 100 gallons of whiskey and a still. I love that it's now a bar, but it was just put on the market, so we have to see what the future holds for this property. And the other building is fire station number one. So while the first iteration of station one was in downtown Atlanta, it would move four different times before finding a home in Castleberry Hill in 1961. This is not only the busiest station in the city, but it's home to a historic bell. You can learn about the bell in the fire department episode, but it's just one more unique place to add to the neighborhood's fabric. Castleberry Hill is unique in the fact that it changed from residential to commercial in its early history. And then around the time of the Olympics, it becomes home um, to a lot of loft conversions and artists. So almost all of these 80, 90, 100 year old buildings were converted to lofts and they continue to stay as such today. This episode is, you know, I don't have all the time in the world, so I'm here to tell you about the early history, but modern-day Castleborough Hill is an amazing treasure trove of public art, places to eat, drink, socialize. It actually has the largest concentration of Black-owned businesses, and I think maybe even in the country, but it's somewhere that if you have not been, I want you to go. I have biked through there and walked through there every single time I try a new place, and it never disappoints, and it's one of my favorite neighborhoods. So there you have it the story of castleberry hill i hope you're enjoying the podcast i want to give a special shout out to my three patreon contributors erin zach and michael talk about a surreal feeling the fact that somebody wants to give me their hard-earned dollars because they like what i create so it kind of knocks me off my feet every time and i have finally come up with an idea for special content that i can give my patrons i'm going to share that next week so make sure you stay tuned I hope everyone has a great holiday weekend here in the United States. I will be back next week with more exciting Atlanta stories.